You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy is yours from the triune God. Amen. This gospel passage that was just sung to us brings back a lot of memories for me. And it includes what is probably one of the most well-known scripture verses ever, John 3.16. And it was my very first scripture memory verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. <laughs> and it, again, it's probably the most quotable um, verse ever, except for maybe Jesus wept. It is the evangelist's verse. It is Billy Graham's verse. And some of you might be old enough to remember that John 3.16 guy who used to wear a rainbow wig and he would sit in prominent places at NFL games and Major League Baseball games so that he would be seen by the camera and people might just read the verse on his sign, or look it up, in hopes that they would believe in Jesus and be saved. He became such a fixture that sometimes sports announcers and sympathetic Christians would leave him a complimentary ticket at the will call window. And football player Tim Tebow, if you remember him, once he wore John 3.16 stickers under his eyes at a game. So this verse, for a lot of us, was kind of like a secret code. We are saving the heathens. It has also inspired a whole lot of Facebook memes, like the one where a rhinoceros is chasing a man who is running as fast as he can down a dirt road, and the caption is, Sir, do you have a moment to talk about Jesus Christ? <laughs> and there's another meme just like it that's a zebra that's pushing his face into a car and into the face of a baby who's in a car seat with the same caption. And of course, the baby is screaming, which is pretty much how people feel about this approach. So true confession, in college I was involved in a campus ministry that was all about evangelizing the world in this way. We chaired the four spiritual laws, which is basically John 3.16 expanded to show people that though you were a sinner and God was very angry at you, he tortured Jesus in your place so you could be forgiven and be saved and get a free ticket to heaven. <laughs> and we never figured out why so many people didn't find this message compelling and come streaming into our prayer meetings by the hundreds. So I confess to you, I was one of the rhinoceri. I was a zebra who made people run away screaming. But why would we do this? You know, we were young, we were kind of clueless, and I truly believe that my friends in that ministry thought that they were doing good for the kingdom. But for me, there was something else that kept me hooked in. Because you see, the premise was, if you say that you're sorry to God and you say a special prayer, then God will accept you and love you. It was a promise from God, they said. There was something attractive to me about that because I had prayed that prayer, so therefore God had to love and accept me. God was contractually obligated to love and accept me. I had no reason at the time to believe that there was anything lovable about me, so at least here I had a guarantee. Because I was the girl that had very little sense of self. 
I have a vivid memory from middle school of catching my reflection in a mirror and being genuinely surprised to see a face looking back at me because I felt so invisible and so ghostly, like there was no there there. And like most people, when we feel inadequate, we look for things to do or things to hold on to in order to prove our worth or to have some sense of personhood. We look for ways to construct a persona that will be enough, something that would somehow guarantee that love and acceptance. I wasn't great at sports, so I never made a team. I liked Glee Club, but I could never solo. My mom could sew or craft everything and anything, and I could barely stitch a straight line. But I found that I was good at school. I could get really good grades, so that became my thing, and I became obsessed with getting A's. And sure, that made me a nerd, but at least the other nerds were my friends. I had nothing on the inside, I thought, but at least I can impress, impress a few others and give them a reason to like me. Then, that one time in high school, it was parent-teacher night. And typically, the kids who were struggling in school were dragged to these nights by their parents to find out what was going on. But this year, our principal made an announcement over the loudspeaker. He said, I want the good students to be there too. Bring your parents. And so my honors English teacher, Mr. Yor, looked right at me and said, I want to see you there. So I went and I brought my mom. And I don't remember a whole lot about that night, except that when you're a shy, cooperative kid, that's pretty much what your teachers say to your parents. But then we went into Mr. Yor's room. And he began to speak about my good conduct in class and my attention to homework and all that. But then he began to talk about how ridiculous it was for me to be there. I was simply seeking accolades, merely wanted praise for my good grades, and was taking up time from others. And he went on and on and on and on. And I don't think he was intending to be mean. Um, I think he thought he was teasing and he was funny, and I think my mom thought so too because she was kind of laughing. But me, I absolutely froze inside, and I had this smile stuck on my face because that's what nice and visible Christian girls do, right? But inside, I was screaming. I was saying, you don't understand. This is all I have. This is all I am. So this invisible girl who felt there was nothing to her dared to step into the light for a few minutes and was shamed. And I believed I was right. There is no there there. Some people seem to get what I thought was a more positive light. And this is a really random example, but one that has always stuck in my mind. Comedian David Letterman, who used to host The Late Show, he had the light of celebrity, the accolades, the applause, the Emmys, the millions of dollars. But he had etched on his desk that he sat behind every night the words, I hate myself. Because in that kind of light, there was only part of him that was wanted and acceptable and useful. Only the performer. So like me, he kind of lived as a fragmented person. Only some parts were worthy, and even then, some of those were in question. So over time, I got enough therapy that I became a therapist, and so much spiritual direction. <laughs> that's, how it, that's how it happens. <laughs> So much spiritual direction that I became a spiritual director, but that was also because my seminary said that women were not allowed to preach. <laughs> but I finally got it that love that was obligated is no love at all. 
It only obligates us to hide or to perform for it in order to keep it. It casts a shadow of darkness over us and causes us to fear the light. In the dark, we become blind. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. We believe the lies that we've been told. We become afraid and start grasping and taking, hoarding, pretending, scapegoating, measuring, blaming, disappearing. This has forged a whole culture of severe polarizations and divisions and fear and hate. We're fragmented inside and out. In the darkness, the text says, we stand condemned already. But for God so loved the world, which means God loved the world in this way, he gave his only begotten son to be with us as we are. The opening chapter of this same gospel says that Jesus came to show us what God is really like. He is the light, and this light of God is the life and light of all people. And it says the darkness of this world did not overcome it. It can't even understand it. If you think about it, darkness isn't even a thing. It's just the absence of light. If we were able to shut off all the electricity in this room and block out all the light sources and made it completely dark in here and then we lit one candle, all of that darkness pressing in on the candle could not snuff it out. The darkness blinds us and condemns, but it has no power over the light. So Jesus said in John 3:17, which is not included on the posters at football games, I don't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus does not bring the condemnation, which means God does not bring the condemnation. He is the true light in the darkness. The light has come and the light remains. His light is not something that we conjure and win with special prayers. And in this light, there's no hiding because all of us and every part of every one of us is seen and welcome in the light. In God, there is no darkness at all, and we are welcome and loved in the light, not because we have good enough report cards or have done enough social justice or good deal, deeds to earn God's love, or that because we've signed the right contract or we've succeeded in hiding what we're most ashamed about. No, that's how the world measures and judges and condemns people, but it's not how God works. We are loved unconditionally in this inescapable light because that is who God is. The light of the world that is Jesus is not like Mr. Yor's light, which was exposing and shaming. This light is healing. One of my spiritual mentors, Jim Finley, says that when you can reveal what hurts the most to someone who will not violate you or abandon you, you begin to heal. And that's what God's light does. Because God's light doesn't shame us and expose us as deficient, nor does it insist that we're only there because we're good enough, in God's light, we begin to see who we truly are. Richard Rohr says that we see that we are immortal diamonds, reflecting our truest selves in the light that is God as God's beloved children. We're free to begin to leave the personas and masks that we have become so attached to and so dependent on behind. We no longer need them to define us. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table together on which is the body broken and blood shed, Christ fragmented, dismembered, like so many of us. And is, as we take in that meal that tastes of freedom, Christ is remembered in us. And as we take in that meal together, we remember all the disparate parts of community, the forgotten, the outcast, the marginalized, the persecuted, the hated, and the invisible. And we remember all the disparate parts of our own selves, 
The gospel of Christ is the gospel of belonging, of integration and healing. And of course, this gospel brings with it a community of belonging and integration and healing so that when I'm unable to remember the light, my authentic but really messy anti-excellent community reminds me that it's there and I can come out of hiding. During Lent this year, we've been laying our laments by the cross and then we surround each other. And last week, and maybe this week too, we sang, our darkness is never darkness in your sight. The deepest night is as clear as the day. When we shroud ourselves in darkness, the light of Christ in our community helps us see the light that says, you are seen, you belong, you are loved as you are. So Lent is a time for reflecting on those things that get in our way. All the things we do to hide or to try to be worthy or enough or loved and accepted. This is not to create guilt or pressure or condemnation or to check off the boxes of self-improvement. It is so we may be free to be our truest selves as we await resurrection together. So repent, which just means change your mind. Believe the gospel. And in this way, we will know what it means to be truly saved. Amen. Amen.